I invite you to stand. As we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus.
his name. You may be seated. Good morning. morning. I was going to pray in a little bit, give some words first, but God just put on my heart, I want to go right to him in prayer right now, so would you join me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I think of these beautiful songs that we have sung in adoration to you, the Mighty One, the King, the Master and Lord of everything. Lord, my heart this morning, starting with myself, but all of us, that we would decrease so much so that you would increase and be magnified. As the psalmist says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. For you and you alone are only worthy of that. So, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the privilege of this being used as a mouthpiece for you. I'm always humbled. I thank you so much and pray, Lord God, and I trust that you will accomplish exactly what you want to accomplish this morning in each and every one of our lives, so that you and you alone will get the glory. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So good morning again. It's indeed my great privilege to share God's good and perfect word with you guys this morning. And that is exactly what it is. It is good because it comes from the one and only true God. Amen. It is a heavenly word to God's people who are temporarily dwelling on the earth. If you notice, I am not saying a heavenly word to earthly people because every saint is no longer earthly. We know that the earth and the ways of the earth are wicked and contrary to God. And God's people were once earthly. Many of you guys are familiar with that. We were once earthly, But now we have been transformed from dead men walking to those who have been raised from the dead and alive forevermore. Children of Adam to now being children of the mighty king. So my title for this morning is going to be the Lord, our portion. And when I think of a portion, I think of one's personal share in something, whether it is something that they earned or something that was just given to them or set aside for them. Think of how much division and strife uh, comes upon people in people's lives because of what they think is theirs, right? So let me first tell you this morning about my motivation for this sermon. As you guys know, the elders have, God put on the elders' heart that every communion Sunday we would rotate so that you guys can get familiar with all of us. So again... Knowing that in advance, you always wonder, what are you going to preach on? What are you going to preach on? What are you going to preach on? Right? So the motivation for this came when me and my beautiful wife were doing our morning devotions together. And again, I can't stress enough the importance of married couples coming together consistently 
and studying the Word of God together. And before anyone here gets the possible thought in their head of thinking, wow, those guys really have it together, please remove that thought from your mind right away because this has been a work in progress in our lives since we've been married, right? We strive to come together, but sometimes we're consistent, sometimes we're inconsistent. I praise God for about three years, we've been very consistent, and it's been an amazing blessing because this sermon is living proof. What we learned there stuck to me, and now I'm going to share it to you guys, my brothers and sisters. And what we were doing at this portion in our devotions is we were going through a version of the Baptist Catechism. And it was the last question. We were just finishing it. And the last question read just almost identical as the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we say all the time, what is the chief end of men? To glorify God and enjoy Him together. But the wording here was, what is man's primary purpose? With the same answer. And I like the wording there. And primary... On, let me just. Primary means first in rank, importance, or value. It means that nothing comes before it. We know that there is purpose to every human life. There is a purpose in everything that God has created. All of it is to bring Him glory as the great Creator, the very one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Our God is indeed the only one worthy of the title amazing. We use that word. We say it. We might call people like our wives, our husbands, if you guys are married, amazing. And I think God understands, but really, he alone is only worthy of that title. Why? Because things are because God is. And anything or anyone that attempts to take away from this truth, I would say, is the pinnacle of foolishness. Attempting to take away from this truth has been fallen man's M.O. since his fall not long after they were created. And what struck me as we went through this was one of the passages of Scripture that went with it. What good is a catechism if there's no Scriptures to defend it, right? The whole purpose of it is to have Scriptures to defend it. And this text will be our base text this morning as we worship the Lord together. So as we do all the time, I will ask that you stand up and rise as we give our attention to God's wonderful word. It's going to be found in Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. And it reads, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What beautiful, wonderful words of my King. You may be seated. Now, if anyone knows me, we all have go-to verses. We all have things, right, that, that we like, right? And if anyone knows me, they will know that this is certainly a mic verse, Right? If you know me, you will know that I desire so much to make this a reality in my life, and I know all you guys do. I agree with it. I want this. I believe this. But I am confronted with the reality of remaining sin on a daily basis, remaining sin that still haunts me. I want to be perfect. I long to be perfect, and yet I am far from perfect. 
And please understand that I do not want this so I can say, hey, look at me, folks. Be just like me. I'm perfect. That can't be any further from the truth. I want all this because my Lord, your Lord, our Lord deserves perfect servants. He is deserving of worship that is only perfect, yet this will never be in this life. Yet the scripture is very clear. Our Lord said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And one day, that will be a reality. One day we will be in a different age. An age where righteousness rules and reigns and sin is no more. Not even a possibility. Are you looking forward to that time? I am. We ought to long for that age. But as much as that is true... Now we are here. So now what? Are we going to cry, woe is me, I'm a sinner, I struggle with this flesh, please take me out of this life, Lord. Let's not cry, woe is me, but rather embrace this time, for it can end at any moment, and understand that you have a wonderful opportunity every morning he gets you up and grants you another day on this very good planet earth so yes we should long for that age to come but we should long for something else too and that is we should long to be the best version of ourselves while we are here on earth as well that is a high calling now is the only opportunity we will ever have to walk by the spirit and bear his fruit Now is the only time we can walk in our sinful flesh and bear its fruit as well, which is going to be not very good. So now what? Now is the only time we can earn rewards for that blessed age to come, and now is the only time that we can earn stuff that will just be burned up and have no eternal value. I had mentioned before that remaining sin still haunts me. Well, guess what? Now is the only time that we can repent of it and turn to the very God who has already cleansed us from all of it. Now is the only time where his mercies are new every morning. And now is the only time where we have an opportunity to respond to this great mercy with gratitude and thanksgiving with the flesh that does not desire God. And what better time to do it than when we come together as a family And that's what we are, a family to worship him, especially on a day when we remember what he has done for us and take part in his table. The very table that he not only invited us to, but one that is ours forever if you are in Christ. That is forever we have a place at his table. And brothers and sisters, when we respond in that way, it brings honor and glory to our God. And we can do this with these sinful bodies because we know he saved us regardless of it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the ungodly. It was actually in the divine plan of God that man would fall and the God-man would take his place and receive the just wrath of God on their behalf, our behalf. 
It was in the divine plan of God that he would receive glory through redemption. And redemption involves sinful, fallen people like you and I. So yes, hate your sin and kill it, as some have said. But be reminded that he allowed you to be born in this very sinful state so that God would be glorified through the very Christ who made you, redeemed you through his bloody death and resurrection, and left us with the helper, the blessed Holy Spirit, who illumines us and empowers us to both understand his word and live it out for the glory of the King. Oh, church, please know that we have such great opportunities Each and every day, he gives us life. But understand this. Those opportunities will be wasted if we do not have the right perspective. Whenever I see verses that immediately speak to me like these, I like to look at the context in which they were written. Now, these verses can certainly be taken as an isolated passage removed from its context because the truth being expressed finds its support throughout the whole entire Bible. But if you want to get the fullest understanding, we must understand the context in which it was written. And we already know that many things can't be taken out of its context because it would mean something completely different, something that would be false. So context is very, very important. So I want us to look at the passage to get the context and see what the psalmist wrote and why he wrote it. And my goal today, I do have a goal, I do have an aim. My goal today, which shouldn't be that difficult because we sang songs that go exactly with this sermon. My goal today is to convince you of the truth that is stated in our text this morning. That is it. Convince you of the truth or really affirm it to you, because I'm preaching to the choir, I believe. My desire is that each and every one of us here can boldly embrace and claim these verses as our own, because we are the children of God. Perhaps, maybe if God leads you, maybe even memorize them, as they speak of what true spirituality really is, or really better put, they speak concerning the heart of where true worship comes from. James Montgomery Boyce quotes this in his commentary. He says, In an excellent contemporary study of this psalm, Roy Clements, a pastor of the Eden Baptist Church in Cambridge, England, links this new perspective to worship, saying, Worship puts God at the center of our vision. It is vitally important because it is only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. And I cannot agree with him anymore. In church, don't you want to see things as they really are? I know I do. And I hate it when anything takes away from that and my vision gets blurred. So let us all be encouraged by God's word this morning, looking at the totality of the 73rd Psalm. So let's get a little background. This Psalm was written by Asaph. He wrote 12 of the 150 Psalms. And Asaph was from the tribe of Levi and was one of David's chief musicians. And being a Levite, he was a servant in the tabernacle and was a leader in worship. So Asaph was a very, very important man with a very important job. 
Now, a worship leader is not going to be his best if he loses his perspective and his vision gets blurred. And Asaph got to a point where this happened. He was human, right? Just like you and I, and subject to failure. But God uses human people who are sinners, who are fallen, and he works in and through them. So were the apostles, right? So were the prophets, the priests, the kings, and everyone else in Scripture. They were flawed men and women. And this should be an encouragement to us. So he got his focus off the heavenly and got thrown off God with the earthly. And it led to a blurred vision, a vision that lost its focus. And he had to reel himself back in with the truth of the heavenly perspective to get a very clear vision. So let's look at verse 1 in our psalm. It says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now we must remember that Asaph already went through everything that caused him to write this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that he does is going to give us the bottom line. The bottom line. He's going to start with the heavenly perspective. And the reality is that God is good to Israel. And we could put any other name in place of Israel, and it would still be true. God is always good. It's who he is. He cannot cease from being who he is. He was extra kind to Israel because he chose them as a nation to bring about his son to redeem the whole world. And because not all Israel was ever true Israel, we can also say that he is especially good to those who are pure in heart. Now, this may mean those who are truly God's children, or, and I would say more so this, those who are true children whose hearts are truly set on pleasing Him. Pure in heart does not mean perfect. Everyone would be disqualified. We know that one of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart means clean in the inner self. It means that they have gotten to a good point, I would say, in their sanctification. Not a rival, but a good point. When I think of one who is pure in heart, I think of the motives behind their actions. I think of someone who has a true desire to please God because God is at the center of their vision. Someone who views everything through their knowledge of God and their love for God. Purity of heart is a great place to be. It's where we all should be. But not every believer is in this state. We are encouraged to be in it, and we are blessed when we are. But not all of us are ever in that state. After all, the Beatitudes, after all, the Beatitude says, they shall see God. And Lord willing, I plan on preaching on that one day, if God permits. But John Calvin said the following words. He said, purity in heart, purity of heart is universally acknowledged to be the mother of all virtues, and I agree with him. Craig Bloomberg, the author of the New American Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, says, The pure in heart 
exhibit a single-minded devotion to God that stems from the internal cleansing created by following Jesus. Again, I agree wholeheartedly. Single-minded means unmoved and focused on pleasing the Lord. The double-minded man we know is unstable in all his ways. The pure in heart have a mind that is stayed on the Lord. And there is great blessing that comes from that. Isaiah tells us this in that wonderful verse. Isaiah 26.3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts you. When someone's mind is always on God and his ways, I believe great things will happen. I believe they will receive the blessing of a good vision and will not be robbed of the peace and joy that comes with it. And that's exactly what we should want. And then in verse 2, he's now going to get to the part with the vision unclear. The vision unclear. Verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here the next thing that Asaph does in this psalm is confess his error. As a worship leader, he ought to lead in repentance. He ought to confess to those he leads that he has sinned and show the importance of making it right before a loving, holy, and forgiving God. And then he shows how twisted his thinking had become and how short-sighted he became. He only saw things on the surface. And then he says this in verse 4, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, this people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how could God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Now, what he said here is first, I believe, a little exaggerated. He was only seeing what was on the surface. Jesus said a little bit of this about the Pharisees when he spoke to the, the, uh, the people of Israel. He said, don't just look on what's on the outside. He said, they're filled with dead man's bones. They are whitewashed tombs. They are filled with hypocrisy. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. You see, Asaph lost his perspective, and it was really bringing him down, and God was getting more and more out of his thoughts. And even if he wasn't exaggerating, as I believe he very well may have observed correctly what he was seeing, he was still heading down a road that was unhealthy for his spiritual life and the life of those he ministered to. The phrase, why do good things happen to bad people, or saying it in the opposite way, exists because there is some truth to the statement. 
But it's only true through a certain lens. He had said that he, is, he was envious of the wicked. Now first, let me just say this. One cannot be envious of the wicked and pure in heart at the same time. Here is a believer, a child of God. And he was envious of the wicked. He's not pure in heart. Right? Secondly, envy is not a loving word. It certainly does not stem from a pure heart. A worship leader is to lead in loving the Lord and loving people, all people. And many times people think that envying is just wanting something that another has. In other words, that they simply just want to be able to enjoy the same things as them. But the word means much more than that. It carries the idea of resentfulness with it. To resent someone means that you desire for them to suffer, that you have ill will towards them. It most assuredly is not a loving quality, but a quality that stems from hate and jealousy. More so, it either leaves God out of the picture, or even more so, it blames God. Again, James Boyce uh, rightly says, envy is criticizing, criticizing God. It is sin. Why? Because whatever prosperity or lack thereof that one receives is because of the sovereign God who has allowed it to happen. He is still on the throne, and he is in control of all things. A worshiper of the living God should never be envious, especially of the wicked who neither love God, care about God, or worship him. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. It eats away at you from the inside out. Proverbs 23, verse 17, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. Proverbs 24, 1, Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Here is God's word to sinful men. It is the truth. It is a loving word. He's saying that because he knows our nature. He knows our bend to be this way, and he's telling us not to do that. Do we believe him at his word? You see, Asaph's blurred vision led him to a state of discontentment. And discontentment and envy will often, if not always, go together. We know that God has called us to be content with all things, wherever we are at. And the key to being content with all things first starts with having the right understanding of ourselves, what I mean in relation to God, and then who and what we are leaning on. Concerning the right understanding of ourselves, this is what the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him st uh, stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. 
And one called to, the, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's saying, I, a sinner, am alive after seeing the righteous one, the Lord. He understood how righteous he is and how sinful he was. And sin cannot be in the presence of the Lord. Hagar, when she ran away from her mistress, experienced something very similar. And when the Lord told her to go back and be obedient, she says this in Genesis 16, verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, I have even remained alive after seeing him. She understood she was in the presence of the righteous one being a sinner herself. Peter understood this as well. You remember Peter in Luke chapter 5, verses 4 to 8. They went fishing. That was their livelihood. And if you know anyone who fishes, it's not fun when you don't catch anything. Right? whether you do it for fun, but especially if you're providing for your family, right? They went out fishing. They got absolutely nothing, right? Verse 4 says this, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Come, help this. We are going to lose this. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Such a powerful demonstration of the most holy God who is Lord over the sea and everything in it. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He understood his place in relation to the Lord. You see, Peter was confronted with the Holy One of Israel, and it led him to look at himself for what he truly was apart from him. And the key to being content with all things, again, first starts with having the right understanding of yourself in relation to God. And secondly, who and what we are leaning on. Concerning this, Proverbs 3.5, very popular verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That is, do not trust in yourself or your experiences but in God who is Lord over all of it, who is sovereign over all of it. Proverbs 16.8, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. 
First Timothy chapter 6, verses 10 to 12a reads like this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. And brothers and sisters, fighting the good fight of faith will not happen when our vision is blurred. It will not happen if we are envious of sinners. If we are trusting in ourselves and leaning on our own understanding, which we have none. And it most assuredly will not happen if we forget our natural selves apart from him. And perhaps the worst part of a blurred vision is its climax. Look what it says here in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. To think that all you are doing for the Lord in obedience is in vain is the saddest thing I can possibly think of right now. Quite the opposite of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. To think that serving the Lord and being content with Him is empty, useless, futile, is not a good thing, church. Now, most of us would never say this. We would never say such a thing. But there's something that speaks a lot louder than what we say. And that is our attitudes and our actions. And guess what? They speak much, much louder than words. Many may know to never say such things, but their complaining, their discontentment, and coveting prove where their hearts truly are. Again, these things speak louder than words. But then Asaph tried to understand. He tried to understand. He began to clean the lens. So let's look at the cleaning of the lens. Verse 16, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Why? Because he was trying to understand in his own strength, which he had none. And he, like everyone else, like you and me, has no strength in and of himself. No understanding in and of himself. But there is, in fact, hope. Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You see, our God is indeed a good and gracious king, like the song we sing. When we drift, and we all do, he is long-suffering toward us and extremely kind toward us. He brings us back to reality. Asaph had no strength and understanding in himself, so he went to the source. We know that the sanctuary represents the presence of God. It was a place of worship. 
And this include when this would include his word. It would include every aspect of his worship. I like what David Guzik says. He gives insight. He says, What did going to the house of God do for Asaph? There he could gain understanding in several ways. He says, By prayer and worship in the sanctuary, he understood that God was at the center of all things, and he gained a fresh appreciation of both God and eternity. He says, By hearing the word of God in the sanctuary, he understood that there was a truth that went beyond what he saw and experienced in everyday life. By observing sacrifice at the sanctuary, he understood that God takes sin so seriously and that it must be judged and atoned for, even if it is by an innocent victim who stands in the place of the guilty by faith. And brothers and sisters, we are supposed to be people of the book. The word of God is primacy here when we come together to worship. It is our guide in all things. And when we say we trust in God for all things, what we are really saying is we trust in his good and perfect word. What the word tells us about who God is and what he has done and what he will do. Thus says the Lord, therefore, thus we believe, and thus we hope, and thus we say, and we cling to, and therefore, he and he alone is our joy. So the trust in God is to believe in everything that he has told us in his revealed will, which is for us and our children forever. Nehemiah understood this. He knew his sin and the people's sin before a holy God. He knew that everything that they were going through was their own fault, and he knew that they deserved it. But he also knew something else. He knew some other things about God and his nature. He knew this because of his word, and he clung to it. And he clung to it before the Lord in confidence. Look what he says in his prayer. In the beginning of Nehemiah, the first 11 verses. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Does that sound familiar? Does not pastor always love to say these words? He's quoting Exodus. Nehemiah is quoting God's word back to him. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night before the... 
for the people of Israel, for your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. What is he doing? He's clinging to his word. He's humbling himself before the Lord. He's acknowledging his sin. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples which they were experiencing. He's quoting Leviticus 26, 33. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 2 to 4. It says, They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Exodus 32, 11. Deuteronomy 9, 29. It says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer of the king. So again, to trust in God is to believe in everything that he has told us in his revealed will, which is for us and our children forever. Then now in verse 18, we see the vision clear. He says this, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Much different than in the beginning, was it not? The first thing that he understands when his vision is clear is the fate of those he was, who, who he was envious of. Asaph must have been thinking to himself, how foolish can I have been? Lord, forgive me. I have you, the Lord, in my life. He is my salvation. He is the song that I sing. How could I be so foolish? Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Then he understands that he was acting as if he wasn't a new creation at all. A believer has been regenerated by the Spirit. Unbelievers are ignorant and without understanding because they are void of the Spirit. They are like brute beasts doing only that which they can do and sin and sin some more. When saints lose their vision and only see what is on the surface, they display great foolishness. They are not being what they were created for and saved for. But with this renewed, clear vision, he understands another amazing truth. Verse 23 and verse 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. He was just in a really bad place. And he was beginning to drift in mind 
and potentially his actions. And he went to the sanctuary, which is a picture of the presence of God. He went to the source and found out the truth that the God of all creation is always with him. That he alone, it is he alone who keeps him and guides him. Yes, he went to the sanctuary. He went to his word and he prayed and he sacrificed and he worshipped. But he understood that it was God alone who reeled him back in. Yes, he almost stumbled. But praise God for that word, almost. I can't think how many times I almost did something and God kept me from doing it. Sometimes he allows us for a season to go through something, but we never fully fall. How many times do we experience a negative almost in our lives? And how many times has God shown himself to be extremely faithful by not allowing us to stumble? For he alone is able to do this. That great doxology at the end of Jude says the following, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Psalm 63.8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. David wrote on the blessings of the forgiven servant in Psalm 32. And we hear this in verses 8 to 11. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And why, brothers and sisters? There is no one or thing greater or more blessed in God's whole creation than those whom he has redeemed. And redemption means so much. We can say so many important theological words that come with redemption, and we should understand those words. But I want to simply sum it up with this very simple truth. I am his, and he is mine forever. And that can be the cry of each and every one of us. And then he gets to our text for this morning in verse 25. But let me just read 23 and 24 again. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. And now we're up there. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
You remember that I said that my aim this morning is to convince you of the truth expressed in these verses. Well, first, I don't know how I can possibly do that. I can't make the word more powerful than it already is. It's God's word. We learn from Asaph that it was his wonderful Lord that kept him from stumbling. And that afterward, when his time on earth is done, he will be received in glory. And oh, what a wonderful day that will be. His Lord is our Lord as well, is he not? And we can claim all the things that he claimed as his people. So I know I can't make this more powerful, but I'm going to at least try, even though I can't. Okay? I'm here. I'm the mouthpiece right now. Any one of us can be a mouthpiece, and we should be a mouthpiece in any context in our life. He's going, he says, in verse 24, and then afterward you will receive me into glory. And the way I see this is that even when I'm up there, who have I but you, Lord? I don't care about anything but you, Lord. No, I've said before that I do not know what heaven will be like. I have no clue. I can only imagine it. And I have a pretty, pretty good imagination, I think. I know it's going to be great. He's told us that on all levels. I know I'll be, re, re, uh, be reunited with fellow believers. That's why we don't grieve and mourn like others do, right? But what makes heaven heaven is one thing, one man, the man Christ Jesus, and nothing else. Remove Jesus from heaven and all that is in it, and give me heaven not. I want no part of it. Now granted, we don't have to make that choice. Understand what I'm trying to say. For Jesus is heaven. He is the brightness of heaven. He is our vision. He is our portion. Nothing is greater than that. My heart may fail both physically and spiritually, but who cares? God alone is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is my great reward. I know we will be rewarded for our faithfulness here. God tells us that. And we should care about that. He says, you're going to be rewarded for your faithfulness. I don't know what that was going to be. But again, God is the greatest reward. Do I need any other portion than the one who always was, is, and is to come? But we are here, and we're not there yet. So please understand that he is our portion here and now as well. He saved us for good works that we would walk in them. He said for us to be holy for I am holy. We know that sin displeases the very God who created us and saved us. And until he takes you and me home, let us live in the way that pleases him. And please understand my heart. Let that alone be your reward. That my God is pleased with me? 
I can't think of anything greater. And I hate it when he's displeased with me. Get to the point, church, where that is your greatest satisfaction. And know that there is no greater reward than that during our stay here on planet Earth. But there's one more thing here. There's two more verses. It says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of, your, of all your works. Fifthly, tell of his wonderful works. And please understand, I am not talking about this evangelistically, though that is part of it. I am not talking about this evangelistically. That is second in my book here. Once Asaph got it right, he could not contain himself. Brothers and sisters, I cannot express how important this is. We are called to come together and share and do good with each other. We are called to build up one another, especially our spiritual gifts. It's for the edification of our brothers and sisters. When God does something good in your life, do not bottle up. Share it with your brothers and sisters. Don't keep all the good things that God does for you to yourself, but tell to your brothers and sisters. And as God gives you opportunity, of course, tell to others as well who need Jesus. But I trust that God will make those opportunities. Psalm 66, 16, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. The only ones who truly fear God are true believers. And it's not because we got it better than them. It's because God, ha God handpicked us. When God does something good or reveals to us something from his word, tell of his wonderful works to each other. I know I want to hear it. I know pastor wants to hear it. I know you want to hear it. And you know who wants to hear it? God wants to hear it. He takes pleasure in it. Be like the man who had many, many, many legion of demons cast out of him. You remember that in the Gospels, Luke chapter 8. I love this. Luke 8, verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. That is Jesus. And Jesus had a different plan for him. It says, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And look what it says here. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You know what? It didn't, matter. it didn't matter how it was received. His focus was single-minded. I am going to do what my Lord told me to do. I cannot contain myself. I am going to tell of his wonderful works. What mattered was obeying the Lord and sharing what he had done for him. We know how much he has done for us. 
And if you're a believer this morning and find that you are struggling to do this, then I'm going to ask you to move your feet just a little bit because I'm going to step on your toes. And I hope that one would do the same for me, and I don't say this as someone who has arrived. I'm putting myself in this. I'm going to say shame on you and me. But not to to beat us down, but rather to build us up. You and I are human, just like Asaph, the worship leader. And at times, we lose our way and get a blurred vision. And with his mercies new every morning, we can get it right and give him all the honor for doing only what he can do. So let us not waste the opportunities that he gives us, church. Let us understand the bottom line, that God is good. Let us understand that our vision becomes unclear when we get our focus off the eternal. Let us understand that going back to the source is how we get our focus back. Let us understand the beauty and clarity that comes with a clear vision. And brothers and sisters, please, 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 let us understand the importance of sharing our journey with our brothers and sisters and anyone else who is willing to listen. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I know that there was times I slurred my words and I stuttered, but that's okay. You have a sense of humor. It has nothing to do with me. I have no power in myself. Father, I'm just going to trust that your good and perfect word will do what it only can do with your people. Lord, help us now as we take part in your table to not let this just be a ritual, but that we would understand how amazing this really is. And we thank you for loving us. We're so thankful that we can cry out to you and call you Father. That that is now our relationship with you. The Father of lights is our Father. What a wonderful, wonderful God. Help us to be better servants to you until you take us home. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the uh, guys to come up.